0: I want everyone just to take a deep breath in and a deep breath out. I feel like uh, it's not a fit day out for men nor beasts as Yukon Cornelius would say and Rudolph, but here you are gathered together in the house of the Lord to, uh, to worship and to hear from his word. and. Um, grateful that uh, you are here. I know many of you are watching online this morning and uh, we're grateful for you as well. Uh, We're grateful that uh, you're employing wisdom whether you're here or you're at home and trying to take into account the conditions and the kind of roads you have to travel and your car and uh, all of those kinds of things. Uh, This section of scripture we're going to look at this morning that Tara just read for us. Uh, Didn't she do a fine job by the way? She's my favorite scripture reader, my wife. If you're new here, <laughs> this this section of scripture is one of those that, if you were paying attention as Tara read this morning, um, you probably at some point in time stopped and kind of reread back to what came before and thought, "Wait, what? <laughs> What's going on here?" Because this is one of those text where we have a rich man who employs a manager to manage his assets. The manager is dishonest, so he's fired. Yet before he cleans out his desk, in what appears to us to be an act of trying to get back at the manager, he goes to the different uh, accounts that his manager holds, and he basically slashes what they owe his boss. Like he cuts the profits of his boss. And we would expect this manager to be called onto the carpet and, you know, and face the consequences, the disciplinary action of what he does, but that's not what happens. And in fact, Jesus, it seems, uses this man as an example of sorts, which is not at all what we would expect. In fact, all of this led our friend from church history, the pastor J.C. Ryle, to write, the passage we have now read is a difficult one, Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? There are knots in it, he writes, which perhaps will never be untied until the Lord comes again. Which would give you great encouragement for the, our time together this morning. If we learn nothing else from the passage before us, let us learn humility. Which is good. It's true, isn't it? And since all scripture is breathed out by God... And all scripture is useful, it's beneficial for teaching and rebuke and correction and training for righteousness. And all scripture is beneficial for our growth in godliness. It's important that we not skip over passages like this that at first are hard to understand, but rather dig in and seek to understand what the Lord is teaching us in this passage. If you notice this passage is placed uh, between two kind of narratives, both of them about money, which shows us that all three of these narratives then are about money. So the passage that you all looked at last week that Pastor Nick so helpfully and faithfully led us through is about a son who squanders his father's money. And then this passage is about a dishonest manager who dishonestly handles his boss's money and then we're going to see here in a couple of weeks pastor taylor's going to preach verses 19 through 31 which will show us about a rich man who wastes his own money we should not be surprised that jesus has something to say about money in fact almost one-third of all jesus's parables have to do with money Which should show us that maybe Jesus' day wasn't all that different from our own. where We tend to think about money and security and finances and retirement and investments. And the Lord then gives us a teaching like what we just see here in Luke chapter 16. So that we might learn to think biblically about money. And biblically about stewardship. I mean, Remember, Luke, according to chapter 1, is writing, and he's writing to a man named Theophilus. And he's also writing to us to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's also writing to show us what it looks like to live lives seeking to follow the Messiah and the Savior. It's, it's as though Luke is answering the question for us, How should we, as followers of Jesus Christ, live? And since money is is such a consuming part of our lives now, as it was to their lives then, Jesus devotes a substantial portion of time to teach on money. And this is one of those places. So as I said, the story begins with a rich man who employed a manager to handle his accounts. The problem was the manager was wasteful with the rich man's money. Look at verse 1. There was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought against him or brought to this man that he was wasting his possessions. We don't know how he's wasting the manager's or the, uh, the boss's possessions, um, but he's being wasteful. Verse 2. So the boss called him in and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Maybe you've been in a similar situation. Called into the boss's office and told, you're going to lose your job. You're being fired. You're being let go. Hopefully it's not because you were dishonest or unfaithful. Maybe it was because of downsizing or your company's closing or your position's being phased out, but... Many of you know probably what that feels like to be in that situation and how you immediately begin to think about the future. Okay, what am I going to do for an income? How am I going to pay the mortgage bill this month? How am I going to put food on the table? Where am I going to live? Do we need to downsize? Do we need to sell things? And this is essentially what the master thinks to himself. Like, what is the future going to look like if I don't have this job? And he identifies a couple of. Of problems that he has, things that he can't do. Look at verse 3. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? Here's problem number one. I am not strong enough to dig. And problem number two, I am too ashamed to beg. So he rules out manual labor. It could be that he has worked this desk job so long, his hands have gotten so soft, his back has gotten so weak, and he's neglected to hit up Planet Fitness on the way to work in the morning, and so therefore, he says, manual labor, yeah, yeah, I'm not gonna be able to do that, right? And he's too ashamed to beg. But an idea does come to his mind. Look at verse four. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So that's his motivation, For what he is about to do is so that when he no longer has a place to live or a place to stay or a place to eat, others will invite him into their homes for meals or for lodging or maybe to stay permanently. Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So this unproductive, wasteful manager suddenly becomes resourceful. (laughs) And maybe you're in management and you, you recognize, you know, as soon as you apply some heat to maybe an employee, all of a sudden they become really productive and really resourceful and that's what we see here. In the short time between this man being fired and him handing in his keys and his ID badge, he gets really creative. He calls up his boss's clients and he slashes what they owe. Like, You owe 100 measures of, of oil? All right, sit down quick before I change my mind and write 50. That's now what you owe. And you owe 100 measures of wheat? Sit down and now write 80. Historians tell us that although the percentages are different, that which was cut, the portion that was cut, is essentially the same because one is more valuable, oil is more valuable than wheat. What was cut is essentially a year and a half's wages for a common laborer. Now this is important. Essentially what this manager does is he thinks to himself, how can I use what I have today to prepare myself for what is to come tomorrow. How can I use what I have today? The the resources I've been called to steward, how can I use those things today to prepare me for what is coming tomorrow? He gives forethought to his future, which is a theme that we're gonna see comes up again and again and again in this section of scripture. If we can imagine Maybe the manager thinking to himself, like this, (laughs) this just might work. Like I'm gonna be out of a job soon. But as soon as I'm let go, and as soon as the money runs dry, I know who I can call. I have wealthy friends. Like if this was set to music, the theme of this, and it were written by Garth Brooks, he would talk about having friends in high places. right, Where they have big homes and can employ him and can give him lodging and he'll be okay. right? Now, if the Bible were one of those kind of mystery novels, maybe you've read them before as like a teenager and you, you get partway through, you get to kind of a fork in the road where the story can go one way or another and you're given the option and you as the reader get to decide what's going to happen. If the Bible were like one of those books None of us would choose the path that actually happens, that actually takes place here. Because we read this and we expect the rich man to find out. Maybe immediately or maybe all of a sudden when when not as much funds come back into his bank account and he's wondering, okay, I'm missing like 50% from this one account. And I'm missing 20% from this other account. What in the world happened? We would expect the rich man, the boss, to call in this manager and finding out what happened to like completely lay into him. And after all, this manager has significantly reduced the profits to his boss. Instead of wisely managing his funds, he's given away assets that rightly belong to the owner. And that's what's happening. Some have speculated in in church history Uh, Try to find ways around that being the obvious thing that's going on here. Some have said, well, what's really probably happening is this manager is simply cutting out his own profit. So he's not going to get a profit, but all the money that is due his boss is going to get to his boss. Others have speculated, well, the Old Testament teaches that Jews are not to charge interest to other Jews. And so likely what this man is doing is actually going back to Old Testament law and cutting out the, 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 um, the inflation, the interest the interest that, that should not have been charged in the first place. The problem is we don't have anything in the text that tells us that either one of those things is happening. And in fact, in verse 8, we see that this man, even as he is commended, is still referred to as the dishonest manager. Or, the Greek there is little, literally, steward of unrighteousness. So what happened? Verse 8, the master commended the steward of unrighteousness or the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. his shrewdness wouldn't you have loved to have known what was going on in the mind of this boss as he calls this manager in after finding out what he has just done and he's probably incredulous like what am i going to do with this guy here he has been an unfaithful manager he's not been wise he's wasted the company's money I need to fire him. I have fired him. All of a sudden, he gets industrious. All of a sudden, he becomes creative. He's still not trustworthy. He's still wasted my funds, but at least he's resourceful. Like, at least he's he's thinking about his future and what will come next. Tony Merida writes The boss does not praise him for his integrity, but for his ingenuity. Like, this guy is still dishonest, but at least he's motivated. It's important for us to remember that the manager is not praised for his godliness. This is not a parable like, we should be like this manager in all ways. Like, if you're talking with folks in your small group as they get ready to kick off this week, and you're talking maybe about a role model in your life or a hero, and people are saying the Apostle Paul, or maybe it's Jesus, or maybe it's Timothy, or maybe it's you know, someone else from Scripture, Like, you should not say the dishonest manager whatever that would be, W-W-D-M-J. What would the dishonest manager do as the slogan of my life? No. We have no evidence that this manager had a change of heart, that he all of a sudden became honest. Rather, the point is that even this dishonest manager saw the need to prepare for the future. And if someone like that can see the need to prepare for what is to come by leveraging all their brain power and all their creativity to prepare for themselves a future, then how much more should the people of God? Like, How much more should we as God's people leverage all the things that have been entrusted into our care? Our our money, certainly, because that's what this is primarily about, but also our time, And our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our treasure, our relationships. How much more should we as the people of God leverage all those resources? Because we aren't just thinking about tomorrow or next month. We're thinking about eternity. And that's the point of this parable. We don't just have the here and now. We as the kingdom of God people who are receiving a kingdom have the future to think about. How can we use what the Lord has entrusted to us today to prepare ourselves for what is to come in eternity and to prepare others for eternity as well? That's the point that Jesus makes for us here in verses 8 and 9. Even the sons of this world, he says, are more shrewd in their dealings with their own generation than the sons of light. Even non-believers are more creative, more calculating, more careful in how they use their assets, Jesus says, than so many of the kingdom of God's people who are less careful and less calculating and less clever. And Jesus says that should not be. As one commentator writes, all the clever people shouldn't be crooks. And there are some clever crooks. I was listening to a pastor tell, tell a story, true story, just this week of uh, some thieves in the UK who stole a man's car, and uh, a really nice car. And they stole it, used it, and then brought it back and left a note on the windshield. True story. Left a note on the windshield that says, thank you so much for the use of your car. We found it beneficial. We loved it. Um, sorry we took it. For your trouble, here are two theater tickets to go to the theater, and so individual who owned the car took, I assume, his wife or girlfriend or whoever out to the theater only to have, while he's gone to the theater, the thieves return and then rob his house, and we hear that, and we think that's terrible, right, but also there's a part of us that thinks, that's really clever, right, (laughs) they knew he wouldn't be home, right, he's gone to the theater, let's go, let's go rob his home, The point is, that sort of ingenuity, that sort of creativity, we as the people of God, if if people are using creative skills, if they're using all of their wisdom and all of their faculties for evil, then how much more should we be bending all of our resources and all of our creativity and all of our entrepreneurship and all of our wisdom and all of our opportunities for things that will last for all eternity? How can we use our resources now? Jesus tells us, I tell you in verse 9, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. A literal word there is mammon, which the Bible uses to describe just the the wealth of this world, the things of this world that will not go into eternity. Jesus says, use those kinds of things that you have now to make friends for yourself so that, again verse 9, when it fails... When it doesn't last into eternity, they, those that we have used those resources towards, might receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let me summarize it like this. We should be using our time and our talent and our treasure, our things of this world that we have in the here and now that we can't take with us into eternity, we should be using those things to invest in people who will last forever When Jesus says make friends, he doesn't mean like if you have a lot of money, use it to buy expensive things for your friends so that you'll make friends. He's saying invest in people so that one day when we die and we enter into eternity and we see Jesus face to face and we're surrounded by this great company of witnesses, we will also be welcomed into our eternal home by those that we have an opportunity to bless. Like, who knows what people are already in eternity now because of the the faithful investment, maybe of your financial resources, your missionary dollars that you gave, the money that, that you gave to the Lottie Moon offering, or your time, or your abilities, or your giftedness. Like, that's the point. Like, how can I use what I have been entrusted with today that will prepare me and others for eternity? After World War II, there was a young man who returned back to his new bride, and um, he had seen all kinds of devastation in World War II and all kinds of evil, and as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, he wanted to not only just provide for his family, he wanted to make a kingdom impact, an eternal impact. He wasn't a preacher, he wasn't a teacher, um, but he was good with his hands, and he had a, a strong kind of entrepreneurial spirit, and so... He began making kitchen cabinets in his garage with the express goal of not only providing an income for his family, but but also to be able to invest his profits into things that would make a difference for the gospel globally. And in the kind providence of the Lord, the Lord blessed that business, and and over the years, by by the 80s and the 90s, it became one of the largest kitchen cabinet makers in the country, And this man and his sweet wife became multi, multi multi-millionaires, yet they lived pretty frugally, pretty humbly, and they gave away almost all of their wealth. At their death, at the time of their death in the late 90s, of of the the man's death, Orville's death in in the late 1990s, they had built hospitals, plural, whole hospitals in different parts of the world. Where missionaries could go and use medicine as a means to share the gospel. They had built schools, plural. They had built churches, plural. They had invested millions and millions and millions, tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars throughout their lifetime in the global cause of Christ. I had the privilege of of being a part of a men's choir that sang at Orville's funeral, Orville Merrillat's funeral. I remember the pastor who preached, the title of his message was the question that everyone really wanted to know, but no one wanted to ask. The title of the message was, Just How Rich Was Orville Merrill And he began to talk about relationships that Orville and his wife Ruth had invested in. He began to talk about the kingdom work of Missionaries on the mission field who were supported because of Orville and Ruth's generosity, of hospitals that had built, been built not only to, to cure people and heal people physically, but through the work of medical missionaries to impact people's lives for eternity. He began to talk about businesses they had started, about nonprofits that had been launched, about venture capitalists that had been given incredible amounts of, of financial resources, all because. Two followers of the Lord Jesus Christ thought, "How can we use the talents, the abilities, the skills, the resources we have had to make a difference in light of eternity? How can we leverage all of that shrewdly, carefully, calculatingly to impact eternity?" I remember, as at the funeral, as he, the pastor walked through each one of those kind of areas of investment. Getting to the end and saying, "If friendships is a mark of, of wealth, then Orville was a rich man. If if gospel ministry is a mark of wealth, Orville was rich." And it was just a reminder, right, of this very thing that Jesus is saying. Philip Ryken writes, "As Christians, we should be venture capitalists for the kingdom of God." That's good. Because we know that our money isn't going to go with us when we die. The reason we have it is to make a difference for all of eternity. So four things that we draw from this parable and Jesus' teaching related to it. Let me give you four application points. Number one, all Christians are stewards of that which does not belong to us. That's so clear in this parable, isn't it? The manager is called not to spend the resources of his boss how he wants, but to manage them according to how the boss wants. Because he's simply a steward, he's simply a manager of that which is owned by another. We should be reminded that our money, our time, our abilities, our relationships ultimately do not belong to us. All of them can be gone in a moment. In 1 Corinthians Chapter 6 reminds us we are not our own. We are bought with a price. We're stewards. And therefore we have a call, don't we, as stewards to use everything we have, not for our own purposes, but for the purposes and desires and goals and aspirations of the one who owns it. Which means asking questions like, how would the Lord want me to spend this money? How would the Lord want me to use my 24 hours of this day? How would the Lord want me to steward these relationships, the neighborhood in which I live, the coworkers among whom I serve, maybe those that I lead in school or in the workplace? How are we stewarding those things? And this is where the manager got it wrong. He, he stewarded his resources for our, his own purposes. But we're given this parable as a warning so that we can get it right. Secondly, we ought to use our resources strategically and creatively for eternal purposes. It's interesting in verse 8 we read the word shrewd. If you have an ESV, it says shrewd. If you have something else, I'm not sure what it might have. But the, but the word there, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, that word for shrewd is also used in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, when Jesus, in sending out his, his followers to do ministry, said that they should be as wise or shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves means we should be as the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ as shrewd as serpents as clever as calculating as careful as serpents as as intentional as serpents and as innocent as doves and those two things go together and should go together like in our parable the dishonest manager was shrewd but he certainly was not innocent And yet sadly, as Jesus points out here in verses 8 and 9, all too often we Christians are innocent, but we are not shrewd. In fact, I remember a story from Max Stiles, who is a a missionary, writes on missions, leads missions, has done a lot for the cause of Christ, especially uh, in in hard-to-reach places among closed countries and closed people groups, was at a conference and he was speaking and the context was he had been serving for many years in a country in the Middle East where preaching the gospel publicly and openly was illegal. And yet, for years, he had faithfully served there and continued to serve there, pastoring an underground church, training a group of seminarians, young men who were pastoring underground churches as well, and in discipling many. And he was talking about this idea of of being innocent, but also being shrewd, being careful, being calculating. And he said, regularly we will get a, a new batch of missionaries who will come to our country. And they know that it's illegal to preach the gospel. They know that they'll get arrested, but they consider it a mark of zeal and boldness for the Lord to immediately go to the street corners and begin to preach the gospel. Or to set up along the street and begin to hand out Bibles. And assuredly, what happens, just in a short matter of time, is they come, they're arrested, they're put in jail, and then they kind of blast out on social media to all their friends and everyone who follows that, to pray for them that they are suffering and being persecuted for the cause of Christ. He said, I'm not so sure that they're being persecuted for the cause of Christ, or maybe being persecuted for their lack of shrewdness. Now, Is there times to be bold in such a way and to preach even if it's illegal? Absolutely. But his point was he had been serving and many had been serving in this country, faithfully shepherding churches underground and discipling many, finding ways to calculatingly do that, if that's a word, to shrewdly do that, to carefully do that, to wisely do that where they can accomplish the mission. He said, what sort of mission is being accomplished if they're in jail? If the authorities were to come into his underground church as they met, that would be another matter. But that's what we're told to do here, to be shrewd, to be creative, to be innovative, to be wise. It means always looking for ways to use our financial resources to make any turtle impact which is more than just looking at our bank statement and deciding how much should I give to the local church or how much should I give to missionaries. If you back up a few steps, it also means, okay, what sort of gifts or skills or abilities do I have to maybe start a business or to maybe create something new or to maybe serve with excellence, to maybe seek a promotion, perhaps, that I may receive more financial income, that I may be able to bless more and I think sometimes in our kind of reformed baptistic circles we are so afraid of the prosperity gospel talks about how we should want wealth and we should want more and we should want greater comfort through that that sometimes we forget that throughout scripture God has chosen to use all kinds of wealthy people for his gospel purposes and The work of Jesus and the work of Paul is supported by a group of, of wealthy businesswomen who leveraged their wisdom and were shrewd with their, their gifts and their skills and their opportunities and then supported the work of the Apostle Paul, supported the work of Jesus Christ on earth. As Christians, we should be the most creative businessmen and businesswomen most creative in leveraging our time, the most creative at home in discipling our children because we have an eternal work, an eternal mission to do and that's the point of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, isn't it? The unfaithful servant buried his talent in the ground. He didn't even try to take what he had been given and multiply it. I think perhaps sometimes when we think of making a difference for all of eternity, we immediately jump to preaching and teaching and personal evangelism. Now let's be clear. The faith comes by how? By hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Which means that missions and evangelism is connected to the gospel being spoken, being proclaimed, being written. Gospel impact requires gospel words the old saint francis of assisi i think it's a, it's attributed to him i'm not sure if anyone knows for sure if it's by him like preach the gospel always and if necessary use words it's completely bogus right because you can't preach the gospel without words but you can live the gospel But oftentimes the door to gospel conversation, oftentimes the door to preaching and speaking and sharing the gospel is opened through very unorthodox means, like men and women choosing to go into the field of the medical sciences, because they're gifted that way so that they can not only just make money to support a family or to provide for their needs, but so that they might have opportunities as they're meeting people's physical needs to meet their spiritual needs. When men and women launching into startup ventures with the purpose not only of of making money so that they can give that money to missions or to evangelism or to the gospel, but also so that they can employ people who need the gospel and therefore have an opportunity to share the gospel to their employees. We're called to be that kind of creative. In fact, if you think about the great movements of God throughout throughout church history, they did not just come through the right communication of doctrine. They also came through creativity in the mission. Like how can we be spiritual entrepreneurs? Like that'd be fun to discuss even in your small group or your women's Bible study or wherever at some point in time in the next little while. Like be something good to go home and think about. How can I be a spiritual entrepreneur with the resources and the talents and the relationships that the Lord has blessed me with? How can I seek to bend all of those things for eternal impact? Third, our faithfulness now is related to our eternal reward later. So Jesus is still building on this parable when he says in verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also unfaithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Sounds a lot, again, like the parable of the talents. If you're not faithful with little, how can you be faithful with much? The principle is clear. Our character is built one small decision at a time. In fact, in verse 11... Jesus says, if you've not been faithful with the unrighteous wealth, meaning the things of this world, it doesn't mean like immoral wealth, it just means the things of this world, things that won't last into God's righteous eternity, then who will entrust to you the true riches, meaning eternal riches? And if you have not been faithful with that which is another's, meaning the Lord's that we steward, who will give you that which is your own, which is our own gift of eternal life, our own eternal inheritance now to be clear just so that we're all clear money cannot purchase salvation the bible is clear on that faith comes as a gracious gift from god to us to be received by the open hand of faith and in fact according to ephesians chapter 2 even the open hand of faith is a gift from the lord And at the very same time, Jesus makes it clear in this text that our stewardship of things like money has very real eternal kingdom ramifications. We should say, why is that? Which leads us to our final application point this morning. Number four, our use of money reflects the heart. Look at verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Maybe you've been in a position where you had two bosses that couldn't agree on anything and you're kind of like, "What? who do I follow? Who do I listen to? What do I do? Or maybe your boss and your boss's boss didn't agree. Or maybe you had two parents that never agreed on anything. You know how frustrating that can be. Jesus tells us that money and God are like that. It is impossible, not just difficult, but impossible to serve the Lord and serve money. And an x-ray of sorts that reveals what or who you love is your money, your bank statement. Our money reveals the contents of our heart. It reveals what we worship. It reveals what we value. Like if we love money, it will show in how we spend our money. And Jesus says, You either love the Lord and use money for the Lord's purposes, or you love money and you use money for your own purposes. You cannot have it both ways. So we should ask what, what about you? What about me? Who or what is on the throne of our life? Is it money? Is it that which money promises and never delivers? Comfort, security, a certain image, influence, ease of life? And just think, brothers and sisters, of all that Jesus through his poverty gives to us. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he writes his what we call the second letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians, he he writes to encourage the Corinthian believers to give money to help the needs of the church in Jerusalem. And in chapter 8, verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by... Uh, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now this is not only speaking of, of material wealth. It's important for us to see that Jesus, by setting aside the privileges of his divinity, by choosing to be poor, lived and died without sin, As a substitute for all who trust by faith in him, as our only hope for forgiveness for our own sin, that we might receive eternal life through our risen Savior. And so we, as his followers, must be cautious because greed is sneaky, the love of money is deceptive, it grows in the shadows of our hearts. But here's the good news. There is new grace for today. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I have not been shrewd at all. I've been pretty lazy, in fact, when it comes to my stewarding of my resources for what is to come in light of eternity. Brothers and sisters, there is forgiveness today. There is grace that is deeper than the depth of your failure and my failure to be shrewd with what the Lord has entrusted to us. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know what, I've pretty much used all of my resources, all of my financial assets, my time, my relationships, my abilities, my skills, I've used all of those for myself. And I have never even considered how to creatively leverage my time and my talent and my treasure for God's eternal purposes. You know what? There is grace for today. Today is a great day to start. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know what? I'm glad there are other people in this room who are hearing this this morning because <laughs> I'm pretty much killing it. I'm leveraging all my resources, time, ability, skill. I could probably do better, but you know what? I'm probably better than most of the people sitting around me at this. If that's you this morning, you know what? You are no more justified in the sight of God than your brother or sister who is failing steward well. You are no more in right standing, no more saved in the sight of God because you're doing well at stewarding your resources. Rather your only hope in life and death and my only hope in life and death and all of our only hope in life and death is not that we are effective Every single day in this, our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own. But by grace, through faith, we belong wholly to Jesus Christ, who calls to us to steward our resources in light of eternity, not to merit salvation, not to maintain our status as the saved, but out of joyful love and gratitude because it's worth it, and he is worth it, amen, amen, would you stand with me, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and, and I, my hope, Father, real simply would be that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict each and every one of us, show us areas where there is needed growth, you give us fresh opportunities to leverage our resources, first our finances, because we recognize that that's what this text is f- first and foremost about, but also our time and our, our talents, our gifts, our abilities, our relationships, that we would steward those shrewdly, meaning that we would be creative and intentional and thoughtful and wise. We would make the best use of the time because the days are evil, as we're reminded that Paul writes... And God, my my hope is, our hope is here at CCF that, that maybe even perhaps, humbly, out of this message from your word this morning, you would begin to provoke hearts and stir things in minds this morning that six months from now, six years from now, 20 years from now, there would be fruit being born in our lives in new ways and in fresh ways because of something that you began to stir within us even this morning maybe new businesses, maybe young people taught and encouraged to fan their creative abilities, leveraging those for the sake of the gospel. Father, whatever it is, Father, we ask that you would do your work in that regard. We would keep our eyes on you, that we would be humble and faithful and joyful along the way. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, for his glory and for our joy. Amen.